Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. One of my favorite books turned into a movie is uh, the, the book called Unbroken. Anybody know the Unbroken story? Okay, well, a lot of you do, but uh, for those of you who don't, let me just give you a, a brief recap. It's sort of the life story of uh, Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a famous Olympic runner during the World War II era, and then he ended up serving in the war. He became a bombardier on a B-24 Liberator, and he usually flew on a Liberator called Superman. But at one time in his life, he and part of his crew actually were needed to fly in a different Liberator called the Green Hornet on a search and rescue mission. And here's the bad news. The Green Hornet had a reputation among the pilots as being a complete lemon. Always something going wrong with it, which is not good when you're flying a plane. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, the Green Hornet crashed, and Louis was one of three survivors. They floated for a long period of time on a raft, ended up by the Marshall Islands where they were captured by the Japanese Navy. And then Louis and his, um, the, the other man and his crew that was left, they became prisoners of war that were constantly, just viciously tortured. And most of that torture that was most vicious came from one particular prison guard named Mits, Mits, I forget his name right here, Mutsuhiro Watanabe, a man also known by the guards as the Bird. To give you an idea of how bad it was, even after the war was over, the bird became one of the top 40 war criminals in all of Japan after the war because how he tortured people was just that bad. When the war was over, uh, Louis came home literally to a hero's welcome. People thought he had come back from the dead because they thought he had died. And it was interesting. It looked like life was moving on for him because he ended up getting married, ended up every, everything was going well, but it wasn't going well because the pain, the agony, and all the torture of his past, even though he was freed from it, was still reaching into his present and controlling him. Louis became an alcoholic. Lou would get up in the, in the middle of the night, and he'd be in a cold sweat and have night terrors. And he had visions of constantly getting even with his captors and torturing them to death. Just terrible stuff going through his mind. So while Louis had set the past behind him in one way, his past didn't leave his present. It reached into his present, and it controlled his life. Now, today, many of us here are no different than Louis. The truth is why we don't have a satanic prison guard in our past that tortured us that we just won't let go of. Each one of us has had people in our past that has hurt us deeply. Each one of us has had tragedies take place in our life that have wounded us and there, that wound is just and fresh and real today 
as it was five or ten years ago when it took place. And the past has reached into our present, and it is controlling us and manipulating us, just like was happening to Louis. Today, we're going to learn how to leave our past behind. We're going to learn how to let the old wounds go and move into the present. And we're not going to do that by looking at a man named Louis Zamperini. We're going to do that by looking at a man named Jacob. Now, if you've been with us, you know we're studying our way through the book of Genesis. And this morning we find ourselves in Genesis 43. Jacob's story goes like this. He was a father that ended up having 12 sons. It was a little bit of a hillbilly family because he had four wives. How did that happen? That's another story, different sermon. But of his sons, he had his favorite son that came from his favorite wife that he just played blatant favoritism over. And that man's name was Joseph. And Joseph, when he was 17 years old, was so hated by his brothers that his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. And they made it look like a wild animal had attacked him and killed him. And uh, Jacob was just filled with grief. In fact, Jacob never got over that loss. 22 years into the future, after losing Joseph, the thought of having lost Joseph was still controlling him, still manipulating him, and still touching and changing him. Now, when Joseph left, thankfully, there was another brother, another brother by his favorite wife that was there, and that was, man's name was Benjamin. Benjamin became the new favorite son. Benjamin was sort of that, lived sort of the overprotective kid, lived in a bubble. You know, dad would not let anything happen to Benjamin. I lost Joseph, and that killed me on the inside. One thing that is never going to happen to me is lose Benjamin. Because if I lost Benjamin, that would just be more than I could ever handle. In fact, we saw this last week when it came time for the brothers to go to Egypt because there was a famine. He sent everybody along, but the one person he wouldn't let out of his sight, that Mr. Overprotective Dad had to keep under his control, was Benjamin. And the reason he couldn't let him go was because he was still dealing with the pain of his past. Last week, we saw how guilt, 22 years later, controlled and manipulated Joseph's brothers. It was just as real 22 years after they sold him into slavery as the day they did it. And today, we're going to see how grief controlled and manipulated Jacob 22 years later after losing his son. He could not move on. And because he couldn't move on into the future, he could never step into what God had for him because he couldn't let go of his past. Let me show you just how real this was for him. And actually, we're going to pick up in Genesis 42, verse 38. It's in your outlines. One of the ends of the last, one of the last verses in the previous chapter. He said this, But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, 
and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Now, here is my question. Is Benjamin the only son left he has? No. There are nine other sons standing in front of him at that moment. What do you think it made them feel like when he said, Benjamin is the only son that I have left? Do you feel that rejection? Do you feel that hurt? How he just would not move beyond that? In fact, you need to understand is he was such an overprotective dad that for the next two years, he would not let Benjamin go. Simeon stayed in jail in Egypt, as we saw last week, for two years because dad would not let Benjamin go. And he wouldn't let Benjamin go because he was still grieving and wouldn't move beyond the pain of losing Joseph in the past. It happened once. I'm never, ever going to let it happen again. In fact, as you'll see in a moment here, what happens is his family gets to the edge of starvation because he will not let Benjamin go. Let's go ahead and begin in verse, chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Joseph, their father said to them, well, go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will not send our brother with us, we will go down. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Well, they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to those questions. Could we or any, in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Now, if we had not delayed we would now have returned twice. First thing I want you to notice at the top, I just think dad is not quite rational in his old age. You notice he says to them here at the beginning, he says, now go again, buy us a little food. This is not a trip to Casey's. It is not. Egypt is 250 miles one way through rough terrain. I don't think he's quite realizing, you know, this is a hard deal to go there. It takes two years to do two trips. Other thing that's interesting to notice, by the way, is Judah 
sort of steps to the forefront here. And Judah was the fourth son that he had. He will remain in the forefront for the story for the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, I only mention that because when we were earlier studying the book of Genesis and we saw a little bit of the backstory of Judah, remember who Judah is. He is the son that went off the deep end. The son that went and married intentionally a Canaanite wife. The son who had two of his three boys struck dead by God because he was such a bad parent and what they did. Now, this is the amazing part. Judah is a guy who is saved by grace. And by grace, he comes sort of back into the family story and becomes the leader of the family here. And he says, Dad, send me down. I will take care of Benjamin. And Dad has this interesting response. He says, why did you even tell him you have a brother? And, and Judah's like, you know, I was only answering his questions. And Dad's like, you should have lied. Now, interesting little side comment. By the way, when your grief becomes your idol, it will let you rationalize anything, won't it? And that's exactly what has gone on with Jacob. His grief has become his idol. He rationalizes saying, you should have lied and not even told him about your brother. The story continues. Then their father, Israel, said to them, Well, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags. And carry a present to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachios, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. You know, perhaps it was just an oversight. Now, another interesting observation as we read through the text is you know, as we have studied Jacob's lives in the past few Jacob's life in the past few weeks, you know that Jacob has a reputation for being a manipulator, and he likes to be a trickster. Now, I just thought about this. How hungry is his family at this point? They are dying of starvation. And yet, what does he do? Tells them to take their food and send it to Joseph who is the second most powerful man on the planet, who has all the food for the entire world. Like, no, Judah, you don't need to manipulate anybody to do something kind and gracious for you. The story also continues. It says, take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother, and Benjamin. And as for me, well, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Another little note I want to mention to you here. He calls Benjamin by name, but does he call Simeon by name? No. He's just called your other brother. He's called, uh, what's his name? Talk about the favoritism again. You know, he's left Simeon for two years in the bowels of an Egyptian jail because he won't 
let Benjamin go. And he doesn't even mention his name in this. Now, I just want to summarize, and I'm only going to do 14 verses today. I want to summarize something. Do you see how Jacob holding on to his past is destroying his future? Let me just give you a list. Number one, as Jacob holds on to his past, he plays incredible favoritism on Benjamin. What does favoritism do in a family when you play favorites with your kids? It injects the poison of bitterness inside of their lives. Holding on to his past has left Simeon stuck in an Egyptian jail because he will not let Benjamin go. Holding on to his past leaves his family to come to the point of utter starvation after two years of refusing to let the rest of the brothers go and buy food. And maybe even more importantly is something he never even realized. Holding on to the past and refusing to let Benjamin go is keeping him from seeing Joseph, the one son he really misses and loves. Here's my simple point. Holding on to the past didn't just keep Benjamin from moving into the future that God had for him. But it's true for us, too. If we can't move beyond the past and the wounds and the hurts that we've experienced, we also will never be able to move into the future and be able to accomplish what God has given us to do with our life. So for the balance of our time this morning, I want to sort of want to switch a little bit and move from text exposition and do something a little different, do a little bit of topical teaching. I want to give you three questions to help us move beyond the grief of our past into what God would have us for our future. And here are the questions. Oftentimes we have to ask, or we find ourselves asking, why did this happen to me, number one? Number two, what should I do now? And number three, how can I move forward? So let's walk through this. Whenever we go through a real terrible tragedy, like Jacob has gone through, or like Louis Zamperini has gone through, we constantly find ourselves asking, why? Why did this happen? And let me give you some reasons why hard times happen in our life. Number one, sometimes we bring hardships on ourselves. That's the reason we're suffering. We brought it on ourselves. Um, the classic story of this is David and Bathsheba. And maybe you know this story. Uh, David sees Bathsheba, and he takes Bathsheba, and he uh, is intimate with her, and she conceives a son. But she's actually somebody else's wife. He's Uriah's wife. She's Uriah's wife. So David arranges to have Uriah murdered on the battlefield. And then David just conveniently marries Bathsheba. So he looks like the hero because he's the guy who has married um, the one lady who was pregnant and whose husband just died in battle. He looks like the hero. 
And he goes on for about two years like this, living this lie until Nathan the prophet comes along and tells him that essentially, here's the deal. You know, let me tell you a story about a minor offense. And David gets angry at the story of this minor offense. And Nathan says, by the way, that's you, but like ten times worse. And he pulls the trap door and tells the exact truth of what happened to um, David. And here's what is interesting. From that point on, if you look at the course of David's life, his life starts to go downhill. He suffers for his sin. Now, is he forgiven for it? Yes, but there are consequences he has to live with. And here's my first point for you under this. Don't blame God for self-inflicted pain and hurt. Don't blame God for self-inflicted pain and hurt. Let me give you an example of how I see this. I know some people that drive, and they drive really fast, like typically 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. And I've been with one of these people, and sometimes they, the cop goes to pull them over, and they say, why did the cop pull me over? God, why did that happen to me? And I'm like, I can tell you why it happened to you. You're driving 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Don't blame God. Take your foot off the gas, put it on the brake. It's just a natural consequence. I'll give you another example. I talked a few years ago about a man who was saying to me, why is my marriage falling apart? Why is my wife divorcing me? Why is God letting this into my life? And I had to just be real honest with him. If you wouldn't keep getting drunk at night and beating her, she would stay. Don't blame God. Take responsibility for your own actions. Now, this is something that a lot of us don't like to do. We don't like to take responsibility for our own sin. But here's the thing I want you to understand. We can never move into our future unless we accept responsibility for our own sin and refuse to blame God for it. Sometimes kids like to blame their parents for things that go wrong in their life when really they need to take responsibility for the things they did. Or they like to blame their teachers for things that happened. Or their friends or their country. And here's the deal. Accept responsibility for your own actions. But it's only when you accept responsibility for your own actions that you can move into the future. And this is the way I often find it works in my life. Whenever there's a conflict I find myself with between myself and other people, I realize that it's not always something I did, but it's part of something I did. Be quick to own what you did. Be quick to own your sin. Confess your sin and then move forward. Because if you don't own your sin and confess your sin, you're a victim. You can't, you can't have any say in your future. Now, a good example of somebody who owned their sin and moved forward would be David and Bathsheba. And in a sense, I'm going to mention this as you go into the next part of the story. Bathsheba gave birth to their son that was illegitimately conceived. And Nathan the prophet had said that that son would die. And when that son became sick, what David did is he fasted and he mourned. And he prayed and asked God that God would do something. But God didn't withdraw that punishment. 
and that son died. And when that son died, the strangest thing happened. I'll read it to you. Then his servant said, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In essence, David says, you know what? Okay, it's my fault. I'm going to own that, but there's nothing I can do about it right now. What, what is done is done. I have to move on into the future and not continue to be controlled and defined by my sin in the past. And what it says after this is David comforts his wife Bathsheba. And David and Bathsheba conceive another child. This child's name is Solomon. Solomon is used by God. He writes Ecclesiastes. He writes part of Proverbs. In fact, Solomon is known as the Yadid, or the beloved of God himself. And the thought crossed my mind. What would happen, what would have happened if David stayed in the grief of his past? What would have happened if David refused to move on to the future and return and comfort Bathsheba? and return to being the king and doing what God had called him to do. Would Solomon have been conceived? Well, possibly, but the point is, he said, I, I, it's over with. I've got to move on. I can't be defined by it. So the first reason why sometimes hard times enter into our lives is because we brought hardship on ourselves. And the proper way to, re to respond by that is to own it, confess it, and move on. But the second reason sometimes hardships come into our life is we, sometimes we suffer because of other people's sin. And a friend of mine says it this way, we are often caught in the backwash of what other people have done with their sin. The classic example of this is Achan and the taking of the city of Ai. Prior uh, to that, when... Israel was conquering Jericho, they were to dedicate everything to God, keep none of the spoils of the, uh, the battle for themselves. But Achan decided he would keep some of the spoils for himself, and he buried it under his tent. And they went to the next city to conquer it. Instead of having God fight for them, they lost, and they lost miserably. Thirty-six men died, if my memory serves me correctly. 36 wives lost husbands. 36 or more children lost a father. And why did those wives lose a husband and those children lose a father? Was it anything that they did? It was because they were caught in the backwash of Achan's sin. Sometimes, when pain and suffering come into our life, it's not because we've done anything to deserve it, but it's just part of living in a fallen, sinful world. When we sin, others suffer. It's always the way it is. I've used this illustration in the past, and some of you will remember it, but you know I used to live on the shores of Lake Michigan, and we would live on, lived on the east side of Lake Michigan. And during the winter, what we discovered is on the Chicago side, 
sometimes people would take and they would push into the lake drums. And I don't even know what was in these drums, but all I know is in the spring, they would wash up on our side of the shore. They had skulls and crossbones on them, and they were leaking. And usually the way that they would be found is by the kids. The kids who want to be the first on the beach for that year. The first to play in the water. And they'd be playing in the water, and they'd go home and say, Mom, Dad, there's this big oil drum down there. And Mom would go down and see the skull and the crossbones, and their kids had been playing in the water. And, of course, the DNR would get called and the big scene and take those things away. But I often thought, wouldn't it surprise me if some of those kids came down with cancer? Some of those kids became deathly sick. Was it their fault? No. It was the fault of a guy on the other side in Chicago who didn't want to get rid of a toxic waste the way he was supposed to, but he just pushed it into the lake, thinking no one will see, no one will know. But because of his sin, children suffered. See, that's sort of the way it is. Sometimes that we suffer because of other people's sin. It's just part of living in a fallen world. Number three, why do we suffer? Sometimes God has a larger purpose that we may not see. Let me just jump ahead in the story of Joseph and show you. In verse, or chapter 45, it says this, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, and now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You see, in the story of Joseph, Joseph didn't understand that God had a much larger purpose for his suffering that he couldn't see. Think about this. When he was in the pit crying with tears running down his eyes, asking his brothers not to sell him into slavery, not understanding what was going on. But now, Joseph can look back and see this was all part of God's plan to move him to Egypt where he would be the key figure to save the lives of millions of people. Couldn't see it back then, but he could see it now. And when he was falsely accused of rape, and thrown into the jail, and he was feeling like life was out of control, and God, what are you doing? Why are you letting all this suffering happen to me? Now he can look back and see God's good, larger purpose in all of it, because it was where he would meet the cupbearer, the man who was the right-hand man to Pharaoh himself, the man who would tell Pharaoh about Joseph, who could interpret dreams, and it would be used by God to bring him from the dungeon room to the throne room in a single day. In fact, Joseph couldn't see that God actually had a larger purpose to all of his suffering that would involve him saving the very lives of the brothers who tried to murder him. But 22 years later, he could look in the rearview mirror and understand why. Why did God get him, allow him to be sold into Egypt? Why had God allowed him to be falsely accused? Now I understand. All part of God's good plan to save millions of people 
and to save the very brothers who wanted him dead. Now, oftentimes, when life falls apart and things go terribly, the first question that comes to our mind is, God, why did this happen? Why did you let this happen? And there's three answers. Like I said, maybe it's because of what I did. Maybe it's because of the sin of what other did, others did. And number three, maybe this is part of God's plan that I won't understand until 22 years down the road and I'll declare God good and I'll see His wisdom in all of it. But the key thing is not to stay stuck on this question of why. It is to move on to the next question, which is what? What does God want me to do now that my world has fallen apart? And here's where, if you look at the comparison between Joseph and Jacob, you can see great illustrations. Joseph shows us what we should do when our life falls apart. Jacob shows us what we shouldn't do when our life falls apart. Let me just show you this. Number one, when our life falls apart, first, embrace the, guilt, the grief and the pain. Embrace it. Don't try and deny it. Don't try and say, like, life doesn't really hurt and that everything's going to be fine. Cry. Seriously mourn with your spouse. Mourn with your good friend. In the Bible, there is always a season of mourning when tragedy strikes. That's normal. Folks, it's healthy. Don't try and be a stoic and pretend like it doesn't hurt when it really, really does. Even Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. It's okay to cry. In fact, the Bible tells us that if you today are here to find yourself needing to comfort somebody whose life has fallen apart, this is what you need to do. It's what it says in Romans 12, 15, I think it is. Weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. Don't try to give them all the answers. Don't try and make them laugh. Just cry. That's normal and it's healthy. Here is the key, though, that when you are done crying because of the pain, don't stay there. Don't allow yourself to get stuck in the grief. Move into the future. Second thing we do, we say, what should we do now after we allow ourselves to grieve, which is to embrace the blessings in that moment. Whenever tragedy strikes your life, in those dark times, there will always be small islands of God's blessing that you can stand on to keep your head above the water. Let me explain it to you this way. Many of you guys know Merle Wallace. He's our camera operator. And Merle just recently suffered a massive heart attack. And I went down to see him in Sioux Falls. And this is, you know, I'm thinking, how am I going to weep with those who weep? And I'm just, how are we going to handle this? And praying about it as I go down. And then I sit with Bonnie, his wife, and she is just thanking God for his goodness in the midst of this tragedy. And she started making lists of little islands of blessings in the midst of this massive heart attack. She said, Kurt, you know, we were supposed to go out of town that night for dinner. But God providentially ordered it, orchestrated it. The person who went to see us that afternoon was late. 
So we didn't go out of town to Minnesota for dinner. In fact, we ended up having to stay in town at Remington's right next to the ambulance. Not only that, but when I had a heart, he had a heart attack, the car was started and his hand was on the gear shifter and the heart attack hit him moments before he put it in gear. 30 seconds later, if the heart attack hit him, he would have been driving down the road. It would have been a massive accident, not just a heart attack. And she started making lists. Look how God was good to us. Look how God took care of us. And I was like, wow, what a great example of in the midst of tragedy and grief, constantly turning to God and looking for those little islands of blessing and giving thanks to Him in the midst of it. And this is what the Scriptures tell us to do. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. The best way I can say this is that giving thanks for those little islands of God's grace and blessing in the midst of a tragedy is like pouring penicillin on the bacteria of bitterness that starts to pervade your soul when you're filled with grief and loss. Isn't that a good way to think of it? It's penicillin on the bacteria of bitterness that fills your soul in pain and loss. And if you don't do that, you will become just like Jacob, a man who held on to his past for 22 years, a man who brought his family to the very edge of starvation, a man who poisoned his relationships with his other children because he was so busy playing favorites with the son in the past. You know, the, the next thing I want to give you is this. What you should you do? Embrace the new normal. And what does this mean? I told you Joseph gives us an example of what you should do in pain and loss, and Jacob gives you an example of what you shouldn't do. Joseph found himself sold as a slave into Egypt when he was, just weeks before that, the favorite son of the ultra-rich guy. But what did Joseph do? Okay, if I'm a slave in Potiphar's house, I will be the absolute best slave I can be. When Joseph found himself put into prison for a crime he didn't commit, what did he do? Well, I'm in prison. Okay, that's my new normal. I'm going to be the best prisoner I can be here, and I'm going to serve and love and help the other prisoners around me. Instead of constantly being in whining and bitterness and being a vindictive and nasty person, spreading all that kind of toxic emotional waste to everyone else around me. It's like, well, here I am. I want to embrace it and do the best I can for it. But Jacob did the exact opposite. Constantly living in grief. Constantly showing favoritism. Not even doing anything to get Simeon out of prison for two years. You see how that made it so toxic because he wouldn't move on and embrace the new normal in his life? Last question. How can I move on? First thing, stop picking the scab. Isn't that what you like to do when you have a wound and it's starting to heal? What do we like to do? Pick, pick, pick. Stop picking the emotional scab. Let me show you what that looks like. Picking the emotional scab is not remembering what happened in the past. 
it is being defined by what happened in the past. Picking the emotional scab is letting what happened in the past that hurt you constantly dominate your thoughts. Isn't that what happened to Jacob? 22 years later, the loss of Joseph constantly dominated him. Picking the emotional scab is letting the pain of the past separate you from your friends and family. Isn't that what happened to Jacob? It tore apart his very family. Picking the pain of the past, you know you're, you're the scab. You know you're picking the scab when it paralyzes you from making decisions going into the future. Isn't that what Jacob did? For two years, he couldn't make the decision to send Benjamin until his family was on the edge of starvation. Picking the scab. You can tell you're doing that when you've become a hyper-controlling person. That was exactly what Jacob had done. Controlled everything because nothing could happen for fear anything went wrong. And he was hurt again. And you know you're picking the scab, lastly, if you have become a very bitter person. Now, let me just be honest and tell you this. Right now, this morning, you will not see yourself as a bitter person. Here's how you find out. Ask a friend. Are you a bitter person who is constantly picking a pain, a wound of the past? Your friend will tell you, because chances are you can't see it yourself. Lastly, about how to move on, cast your anxieties on God. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Take that pain and all that hurt, give it to Jesus in prayer, and leave it there. I began with the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis, we left off his story. He was free from his Japanese captors, but he was still tortured every night in his dreams as he thought of how he could murder them and take their life. His life did change. Here's what happened. In 1949, his wife went to a Billy Graham crusade and she asked Jesus Christ to be her Lord and Savior. Then at the prompting of his wife and a friend, he also went to a Billy Graham crusade where he rededicated his life to Jesus Christ. And as he experienced the forgiveness that God has for him through Jesus Christ, God gave him the ability to forgive the Japanese torturers that had made such a terrible wound in his past. In fact, in his life story, he talks about how those nightmares completely went away. And he changed the question he was asking. It no longer became a question of, God, why did this happen to me? But it became a question of, God, what do you want me to do now that is past and over with? I don't know if you know this, but Louis Zamperini became an evangelist in his generation, a famous evangelist who shared Christ with probably millions of people. He traveled back to Japan, and he met with the prison guards, and he actually told them to their face that he forgave them. Imagine that. And then four days prior to his 81st birthday, he was asked by Japan that he would carry the Olympic torch 
for a leg in preparation for the Nagano Winter Games, right next to where he had been tortured. And while he was there, he tried to meet with Mutsushiro Watanabe, a man named the Bird, right before his 81st birthday, because he tried desperately. He wanted him to know, I forgive you. Louis Zamperini's life didn't just become famous for a few people. It became famous worldwide of how a life that is touched by Jesus Christ can change. And he became an inspirational story of forgiveness, not just for a few people, but his life story was put into a book and it was put into a movie, even though the movie and the book somewhat cloaked the huge part that Jesus Christ played in transforming his life. But see, here's the key. Louis had to move on. He couldn't stay stuck in the grief and the pain of his past. He had to stop asking the question, God, why did this happen to me? Once Jesus Christ changed his life, and he experienced the forgiveness that only God offers, he could start asking the question, okay, God, what do you want me to do now? And little did he know that his life would touch and change millions. Now for you, maybe this morning, you're picking an old scab. You are stuck in the grief and the pain of your past. Maybe it's the a wound that took place 22 years ago, just like it did for Jacob. I encourage you, cast all your anxieties upon Jesus. Leave it at the foot of cross, the cross. Understand Christ's forgiveness and change the question from not why did this happen, but what do you want me to do now and help me move into the future, how I can glorify you and praise you with the difficult things that have happened to me. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.